Please take your Bibles and open with me to the 8th Psalm. This morning we'll study the whole of it. Psalm 8, having a brief break in our study in Romans to come and to consider who God is and then to see ourselves in the light of his glory and his majesty. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak and that your words stand eternally. That the ancient evening psalm of King David can be for us this morning a great encouragement and a visitation of you in your glory, that we might behold you and draw near to you and know your love for us. O Father in heaven, bless us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. How often do you just sit and think about God? Just give your attention devotedly and in an undivided fashion to think deeply on him, his person, his character, his deeds. You see, as we come to the 8th Psalm, that's what David's doing. It's really not a complicated psalm. Some might say he's doing the work of theology, and if that's the case, then all theology is is simply thinking about God. I think this is an evening psalm. You heard me say that a few moments ago. Whenever David is considering God, what does he think about the works of his hands? He mentions the moon and the stars, but he doesn't mention the sun. And so who knows? Maybe he's on a rooftop or maybe he's on the back of a horse riding in the evening. Maybe he's on a walk. But nonetheless, his heart, his mind is focused on his God. 
And whenever we see this in David, there's this wonderful effect that it has upon him. And that is it gives him order to his life. He begins with God and who he is. And then from that, he's able to consider himself in the immensity of the person of God to see how tiny he is. And then it's through the testimony of God's own word that he comes to know who he is in the eyes of God, who he's been made to be. And so as we study this together, I want us to follow along with David to let the forerunner of Christ bid us to simply, come on, go on this evening walk with me. Consider your God and come to know who you are. Five things, if I may be permitted a five-point sermon, that I want us to see in the passage of Scripture is our rightly defined relationship with God. Verse 1, the first portion of it. Secondly, a view of God's transcendent power. The second part of verse 1 and also verse 2. Then in verse 3 and 4, I want us to see a sober view of ourselves. A sober view of ourselves. In verses 5 through 8, a clear understanding of who God made us to be. A clear understanding of who God made us to be. And then verse 9, a life of well-founded praise. A life of well-founded praise. And so verse 1, you may notice that as I read it, I didn't begin just with, O Lord, our Lord, but I began with what's called the superscription. It's this brief description of the context or the history of the psalm. Not all psalms have them. This one does. And it tells us likely what tune it's to or in what manner it's supposed to be sung. It's according to the getith. We don't exactly know what that means. It's probably a style of psalm or possibly a tune. We don't think it's an instrument. If it is, it's one very lost to history. But the important thing is that this is being told to us as a psalm of David. We're told the author. And that's a part of the text. It's in the original Hebrew. Therefore, it ought to be read when we come to the Psalms. That's just a a little bit of a note to you as a reader of the Bible. When you come to the book of Psalms, don't ignore that. Pay attention to it. It's helpful. And I do believe it's very instructive in understanding exactly who it is that writes it and then why he might have written it. But in verse 1, as we get into the text of the psalm, this song of the soul of David, we see a rightly defined relationship with God. It's in the first few words, and I think as psalm readers, sometimes we just, we just jump over it, but we don't need to do that. Read your Bibles slowly and carefully. The first thing that David writes is this, O Lord, our Lord. And in English, you may think, wow, that is redundant. Oh, daddy, my daddy. Oh, friend, my friend. It's not like that at all. In the original Hebrew, we have something here being protected. The first thing that's even said here is the proper and covenantal name of God. 
And so as a Bible reader, whenever you see LORD in all caps in your English, that is a way of signifying the proper name, the covenantal name Yahweh that God gave to his people. And that's filled with meaning. And when you see it in the Old Testament, it stands as a testimony to everything that God has done in his relationship with his people. It's got history. As one of my professors loved to say, it's pregnant with meaning and full of all sorts of information. You see, the context of the name Yahweh coming to the people of God was where? Well, it's Moses in the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? Oh, you shall say I am that I am sent you. This wonderful self-revelation of God's sufficiency, his eternal person, that he needs nothing and no approval, and not even a name, not even a praise for, from any of his creatures to be known, but simply that he is. That's the beginning of this name with the people of God. But then immediately this name takes on the full character of the faithfulness of God to his people Israel. And his deliverance of Israel from the chains and the bondage of Egypt. But God goes on. And all of the history of all of his personal relationship with them being in their midst as a pillar of smoke and as a great column of fire, leading them through the waves of the Red Sea split and into the wilderness, his feeding of the people, his promises to the people, his constant relationship with them, his presence in the temple and also the tabernacle. And so to David and to every Israelite ear, and I hope to you, Christian, this is saying, oh God, the one who has forever been true, who has always known me, who's always loved me, who's been willing and kind to discipline me, the God who has presence with me. This is the God who, to whom I am speaking who is good, just, loving, personal, and eternal. That's where David starts. Oh, that God, you, the God of heaven, the God who is personal with his people, you are whom to us? You're our Lord. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. It's the word Adonai, and you may be familiar with that at some level. It's a title of God that speaks to his mastery, his authority, and his presence in the midst of people. It's not just a casual sense. It's it's literally David saying, Yahweh, you are the one to whom I submit. You're the high king of heaven and I am your subject. You're way up here and I'm face down before you. You are the Lord of my life and of the lives of your people. And that's who he addresses. And so you remember the first point. A rightly, a rightly defined relationship. That's where David goes. And that is the foot upon which he begins this evening psalm. Song to the Lord. 
that the Lord has always been good and that he is his master. And friends, I want to tell you that getting this right matters. Oh, it matters so much. It matters so much more than even you could get your head around in the short, but let me just simply say this. We get this wrong all the time. We define the relationship of the creature to the creator as if it's a seesaw upon which we are going up and down, ascending and descending, and it's an imaginary delusion in the mind of a humble creature. And how do I know that that's the case? Well, it's because I think that you are probably just like me. And that you like to think you have way more power in your life, just like I think I have so much more in mine. I like to think that I know what's best for myself. I also like to think that I have the power to bring those things about. And how am I so sure about that? Because of my struggle with worry and anxiety and concern whenever I feel weak and I can't control the world around me. Let me simply say that this morning as I woke up and I saw the snow on the ground, I was intimately reminded of my lack of power over nature, over the temperatures that I would love to have. And so I bet, again, that you're like me. You often confuse your relationship with your God as if you were the one on the throne, as if you were the one upholding all things, and as if you are the captain of your fate. But this psalm is not just simply to point to you and to me and to say, look at how you've messed it up. No, it's to offer to you this wonderful example of how things are supposed to be. Of how you are to be to your God. And it tells you very simply this, as David is saying here, Lord, I look to you rather than to myself. Yahweh, you are my Lord, my master and my keeper. You have always had your hand on the tiller. If the rudder turns in my life, it is because your hand has been the one motivating it. Oh Lord, I am not the master. Oh Lord, I am not the one that dictates what is good for me, what will be for me. You are. And that is good and it is right. And if we have this in our minds and it trickles down to then fertilize our hearts, we will be so much more and well equipped to deal with the difficulties and struggles of this life and to receive the great victories and blessings and gifts in a manner in which produces thanksgiving and praise. A rightly defined relationship with God is what comes out of just thinking about who he is. David begins there, and then he begins to give proofs, reasons why you and why I should regard the Lord, the God of heaven, as the one who directs our lives and has his hand upon us as individuals. The second part of verse 1 And then also in verse 2, we see a view of God's transcendent power. A view of God's transcendent power. Now, whenever I write sermon outlines and I'm trying to get it across in a meaningful way, just a few words, uh, it's kind of tough. This one's kind of hard, frankly, because of the great things that this group of verses says. 
Second part of verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to seal the enemy and the avenger. And this really is a natural thing as David is is going and beginning to think on God. Where does he find God? On his throne. That's his opening word. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Do you understand what that means? I think at least when we do use the word majestic, it's kind of a throwaway word. It just means impressive. The mountains were majestic. That hamburger was majestic with its bacon and its cheese. That sunset, that sunrise, it was majestic. But really it speaks of majesty. It speaks of rule and power and glory. It's the language of royalty. And what does he say? That the Lord is majestic. It's his his name that's majestic. Everything about him, the fullness of his power and his being is majestic and all of his character. You have to understand in the Bible when you read in the name of, it means in the character of the person. All their attributes, all their deeds, their personality, it speaks to that. He's saying your character, your name is majestic. It's as if he's saying you're spotless. You're filled with perfections. And your perfections are in themselves unsearchable. But it's not just that his name is majestic over Israel or over the context of the ancient Near East. No, it's over all the earth. Now this is different, especially in David's day. There is no worldwide great, I mean there were great, Empires, but not worldwide in a true sense, that every inch of all of creation, the heights of the mountains to the depths of the earth, all of those things under the rule of any one person, but that's exactly what David is saying of God. He is saying your rule is absolute and it stretches to the ends of the earth, all of creation. But then he goes on. It's not just the earth, it's not just all of the firmament and the seas, but it is also the heavens above. And look what he says as he continues in verse 1. You have set your glory where? Above the heavens. Now when you read heavens in the Bible, you may think, you know, whatever your depiction of heaven is in the realm of the blessed afterlife. Maybe that's what you think. It's a place where God is, and certainly the scriptures speak about heaven as being the place and the dwelling of the elect and the time in which they meet the Lord in glory. But this is speaking of the sky, everything that's above. When you read in the Hebrew scriptures, it's it's the waters that are above, very literally. And here, David is going to point very specifically in verse 3, a little bit later, to the moon and the stars, the the heavenly host. So he's saying, in essence, O Lord, your glory is above, it is beyond, it is greater, it is more vast, more full, more even than can be understood than the universe. 
It's as if David is plunged to the depths of the earth and now in thinking of God, he just gets to a place where his mind cannot go. You're that great. You're that wonderful, O Lord. You're more than can be conceived. You're transcendent in your power. You're beyond all measure. Everything is under your rule, your power. You, O Lord, our creator, are more splendid than all of your creation. And I just want to say, Christian, if you've never taken time to think about the character and the person of God and his attributes to the point where you just get to the very end of your mind, I invite you to do that. It takes about two seconds, if you're really thinking on God, to simply think, wow, even the things that I think I have some awareness of about who you are, they're imperfect and incomplete And they're even only held in analogy. You're so much greater than the greatest attempts of my own comprehension. You are a God incomprehensible in your being, your holiness, your justice, your goodness, your truth. And so that's part of what David says. But then in verse 2, he applies it and he comes back down from heaven From the greatest creature that can be possibly conceived, greater than which nothing could then be conceived, to the smallest creatures, to the tiniest of the tiny, the babies and the suckling infants in the original text, the child upon the breast. And this is a a turn of phrase. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength. That's repeated again and again in the scriptures. And it's one that even Jesus used to rebuke the Pharisees who were complaining about him healing a man in the temple on the Sabbath. In Matthew 21, verse 16. Out of the mouths of babies... And infants, you have established strength because of your foes. What does that even mean? How does, are babies evangelists? Where are we going with this? David is saying, you are a God so great, you don't need strong men. You're a God so strong, you don't need champions. You don't need the Philistine Goliath. You can even work with the shepherd boy David. You need nothing from your creatures, but you're pleased to use your creatures to do your own will. Do you remember why Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees with this verse in Matthew 21? It's because little children were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna regarding Jesus. They were praising him. And what's Jesus saying? He's saying, You learned men, you greatest amongst the Israelites. He chose what was foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong. That's in essence what he's pointing to. God is so great, he does not need the strength of any of us, not you, not me, to accomplish his holy will. Now isn't that something we need to hear again and again and again? I need to hear it as a minister. That God would simply be pleased to tell me, Nick, I don't need you. 
I don't need your gifts. I don't need your preaching. I don't need your personality. You are unessential. But I'm pleased to use you in your weakness. With your babbling tongue and your infantile understanding. I'm pleased to use you in ministry. But I am the God who holds all the power. And my will will absolutely come to pass in the lives of my creatures and in the midst of all creation. It will happen. And how glorious is it that our God is pleased to use weak, humble, stumbling, falling people like you and like me. In verse 3 and 4, we gain, I believe, a sober view of ourselves. And I mentioned this a little bit ago in the sermon that we have to wonder about the context. We're not exactly told, but when we come to verses 3 and 4, we get some sense. Again, he may be on his rooftop. It makes sense. Maybe he's on a night ride. Maybe it's the middle of the day and he's just got a great memory and he's thinking about the night sky. But it's this depiction as if he's stargazing. And he's just looking up. And I don't know if you've ever done this or if your experience is anything like mine. I remember being a kid watching a meteor shower and just looking up and you almost feel like you're blind. (laughs) You fix on one star and then there are 15,000 more that your mind and eye wants to go to and you're just scattered. You're like a child in a candy store with way too many choices. Maybe that's where David is. And the effect of looking up and having this sense as he's thinking on the majesty of God. When I look at your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. This great and vast creation, magnificent and beautiful. Then David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? He feels small, small, smaller than an infant, insignificant in himself. And he's having humility thrust upon him by the greatness of this wonderful thing, this magnificent creation of the heavens above that God, even just with his fingers, put in place. You ever read Genesis 1? It talks about the creation. It's going through and it's talking about the Lord creating day and night. And then it just as a passing comment, oh, and, and he also made the stars. Oh, and I added sprinkles on top of the cake. You see, David's thinking on it and he's just amazed. He's amazed. He's driven to think about himself. Undoubtedly, we have David, the great confessor of sin. Psalm 51, who knows the darkness of his heart and submits it to the Lord in prayer, praise, and worship. His weakness, his unfaithfulness, no doubt. And it's not just that he's amazed at the greatness of the work of God, but the thing that amazes him... The thing that's astounding is that God cares for him and does know him. That's what strikes David. It's not that he just feels small. He's amazed that in all of this, his 
God would have an eye toward him. Verse 4, what is man? When I look at all of this, what is man that you're mindful of him? That you even know that I exist, O God, in the midst of all of this, that you would even be mindful of me. My struggles, my victories, my failures. You would know me. How is this? A king, yet still nothing compared to this, that you would know me and the son of man that you care for him. Not only that the creator knows he exists, but is actively involved providentially in his life to clothe him and to feed him, to encourage him. And if you've never thought on it, if you've never ever given any consideration, if your prayer life is only God, these are the 50 things I want and here are five different reasons why I think I deserve them, then let me encourage you to follow along with David and to think of his creation and to simply be driven to sobriety about the tiny person that you are and that I am and to just sit with a mouth wide open in amazement that the Bible can say that you are the apple of the eye of God. To have brought to your memory that whenever God created us, he created us how? In his image and after his likeness. Not only is his eye fixed upon you, but that he loves you. That he cares for you. That he cares about your hurts and your pains. He cares about that purple toe that you accidentally kicked the couch walking through the house with. He cares about that. He cares about your back pain. He cares about your short temper. He cares about your anxieties, about work, and about the very minute details of your life. He cares about the misgivings and the discomforts of your heart. He cares about those things. And in the midst of all of this, he loves you. John three sixteen, so famous. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not just that God is mindful of you. Not just that he cares for you. But that he took on flesh and dwelt among you. To die the death, the penalty, the punishment of your sin. So that he can call you his daughter, his son, his beloved child. That's a sober view. And that only comes from sitting and thinking long on the person and the work of God. In verses 5 through 8, we get a clear understanding of who God made us to be. And here, as you read this psalm, it's almost as if we get a second helping from the book of Genesis, from chapters 1 and 2. We read, Yet you have made him a little lower than God, literally, in the Hebrew, not just the heavenly beings. You made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. 
You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So let's dive into this. And I do want to say that in this section, I want to express uh, a general and a specific use of this section of Scripture. There are things generally said about all persons, and then there, there is a specific application to the man, Jesus Christ. And so let's begin in verse 5. Yet you, that is God, have made him, that is us, all mankind, a little lower than God. Now that is a really interesting thing, and it's almost so awesome, so magnificent that it's frightening. Now, I think that all of us in our sinful selves and in our worst moments, we would like to think we're not even a little lower than God. We're absolutely as great as God, maybe even God himself, and we're seated on his throne. We want to control everything. But in a frightening sense, you're saying, I'm very close to my creator, very close to the one who has all power. And this is just another way that the Bible wants to explain and that David is just pleased to think on the reality that he has made in the image and the likeness of God. You and me are not just creatures. We are creatures, but we're not animals. We're not just like the dog, the cat, the monkey, the fish, the houseplant. Now, some of you may say, I've met some folks that seem like houseplants. I've got a friend, he's kind of like a cat. He comes over and takes care of himself. You barely know he's around. He lays in the window and suns himself. But you're not that. You're made in the image and the likeness of God, and that is not just a high form, but it's a high calling. Because who is God but a holy God? The scriptures tell us again and again and again, no one will see God unless they are holy. Be holy as your God in heaven is holy. It's a constant thing. Slightly lower than God in his image and likeness. There's a second thing that the text tells us about who God made us to be. It tells us that we are crowned with glory and honor. Who wears crowns? Kings and queens. Rulers wear crowns. This past week, whenever I was traveling back from the United States and got to have a long layover in London, I was in Westminster, like any good Presbyterian would do, in Westminster Abbey specifically. And of course, you go in and there are just kings and queens in every corner of this church. I mean, you can't step on a cobblestone within it without knowing you're trampling over royalty. Just a reality. It's overwhelming. And one of the things that I just really think is so interesting is that whenever you're leaving this building, the way that they've organized um, the path to get out of the great complex of Westminster Abbey is you go right by the throne, the throne where they've always crowned the British monarchs, right? Um, And if you look, you know, it's just to your left as you're going out next to the gift shop. You, You almost wonder, why is that not like in a more prominent place? But when you really see it, you wonder, wow, that's the thing? (laughs) It's this beat-up old chair. It's got wormholes in it. You wonder, how in the world did Queen Elizabeth sit on it and not break it? Boy, it's going to be pretty rough whenever Charles sits on it to have the crown put upon his head. It's old. It's ancient. 
It's the symbol of monarchy, and it just, it ought to strike us. At least a little bit that God made us to be like him in rule and care, benevolence and control of his creation. You go on that second thing that he says, to be given dominion over all the creatures. This, this sort of authority that Adam has in the naming of the creatures in the Garden of Eden. That's real authority and real dominion, but also real responsibility for the care of all these things to yield justice for the benefit of life and to keep them responsibly and toward God for his glory and for his honor. And so I want to talk to you, Christian. I want to talk to you, a tender, this morning. How do you feel about yourself? If I come to you and I say, I ask you the question, you know, What's your role in life? What were you made to do? I'm going to get some that say, well, God made me to be a a nurse, a soldier, a preacher. God made me to be a computer programmer. God made me to be a thousand different things. Some of the kids might say, right now, God made me to be a student pastor. I don't know what else he made me to do, right? I think others of you might say, I don't know. I'm really nothing. I'm, I'm a worm. I'm lowly. I'm not really good at anything. I'm really down on myself. I'm not sure that I'm worth anything. I don't know what God made me to do. And, and in the life that we live and all the things the world presses in on you, you may have absolute confusion about who God made you to be. And I think that this is one of the things that blows so many people to the left and to the right, up and down in life. It's not simply knowing that God made you to be like him, a vice-regent, to be like royalty on the earth. You're not a piece of dirt. You're not a rotten apple. You're his prince. You're his princess. And every day of your life, you're to live as if the king loves you and takes care of you. And is coming, and so you tell everybody, my king is coming. And he's almost here. And you're going to need to bow a knee to him and proclaim him as Lord. That's who you were made to be, Christian. You know, I said a moment ago that this has an application in general, and that was it. But there's also in specific, and you say, well, pastor, how can you go there? Well, it's because that's how the Bible uses this passage. The New Testament specifically references this passage of Scripture, which specifically also references Genesis 1. And it speaks of Jesus Christ, the man, God in the flesh, in the midst of his creation. 1 Corinthians 15, 27 All things are in subjection to him. All things are subject under his feet. This speaks about Jesus. And you say, hang on a second, Pastor. You just told me all those general things. Well, let me say, all those general things are complete and full in Jesus. He is the great man. 
He's the one that fulfills this and upholds this in perfect humanity. He's the one without a shadow of a doubt that we can call the king who's seated on the throne of David, not a ragged old beaten chair of British monarchs, but a resplendent crown. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is the one on the earth that's going to set things right. And this holds forward to us an idea of his sovereign dominion and power. Sin doesn't have any dominion over him. We've been reading about this and studying this in Romans. He's conquered death itself and put death to death in his own death. And so I would simply say, O Christian, as you think on God and you feel the call of Scripture to who you are supposed to be, do not waste the imperatives of Scripture and not recognize that they form for you the very depiction of Christ in his perfection. Everything God calls you to be Christ is in fullness. Don't skip over that. And what's the application? Think longingly on him. Imitate him. Love him. Live after him. And then we go and finish this with verse 9. And you look and you read verse 9. And it is a carbon copy of verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, our Master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's like a bookend, right? I don't know if you have bookends. I have some. I have lots of books. Bookends keep all the things, all the books that you don't want to topple over upright. It contains it. And that's sort of a sense of what this is doing. It's, it's a good closing statement, but it's so much more than that. And I want to encourage you to read your Bible carefully and slowly. Don't get in and out of text too quickly. Because this is not simply, although it is, a closing salutation. No, no, no. This is praise that befits God because of everything we have already studied. It's the right response. It is a life of well-founded Praise. That's how you ought to understand verse 9. Oh Lord, our Lord. Here's the praise. How majestic is your name in all the earth. It's shouting to the King of heaven. From the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. How majestic are you. You are Lord. You are my Lord. And I want to glorify you. This is a doxology. It's praise and the glorification of God. And why do I point this out to you? And it's this. It's that I'm convinced that you are like me. That you've, you've sat in some service, maybe this service, and you've sung the hymns, and you've endured the long prayers, and you've tried to stay awake through the boring sermon, And you're struggling, and you're just saying, oh, come on, pastor, we're so close, we're almost at the end. The finish line's there. Get it done. And you move through life mimicking praise without having a heart that believes God deserves that praise. It's just something you do. 
And I want to plead with you, Christian. Think on God so that you, in essence, have studied yourself full, prayed yourself hot, and worshipped yourself empty so that you leave everything in the hands of a God who deserves it. Your praise to God is and ought to always be in consideration of his glory, his might, his majesty, his power, and his love for you. And it ought to come from a sincere heart. And I call you to that, Christian. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all of your wonder and glory. Lord, that even as we speak about you, our best words are still by bare analogy. Help us to know you and to love you and to see you in the glory of your revealed person in the scriptures. To see you in your mighty and wonderful works of creation. To know you in the sweet, wonderful promises of your covenant. O Lord, to behold you in your fullness in the person of the eternal Son took on flesh who dwelled among us. Help us to behold his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. O Father in heaven, help us to anticipate his coming. O Lord, help us to live in the honor and the majesty of being sons and daughters. O Father in heaven, be at work in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.